Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. Today, I'm joined by someone whose work I've been reading for, for a long time, someone I'm really excited to talk to, and I'm delighted and honoured to say that we're joined by today's guest, Fana Haddad, who is Senior Research Fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Hi, Fana. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. Very nice to talk to you, and uh, thanks for having me on, on the podcast. Not at all. It, it's my pleasure. You're someone who's working right at the cutting edge of, of things that we're discussing in, in SEPAD, and someone who's, whose work is right at the, the heart of contemporary debates across Middle Eastern politics. So can you tell us a little bit about where you are sort of intellectually right now, please? Well, uh, I mean, as you know, most of my work is on uh, sectarian relations and sectarian identity, and particularly in the Iraqi context, and this yes. would be Sunni-Shia relations, uh, to be precise. Uh, recently, I mean, for the past year or so, I've been more working on sort of the conceptual side of things rather than uh, the minutiae of, of Iraqi politics. Sure. Um, and I think that quite a lot, I mean, the more I think about the conceptual side of things, the more I, I think that our frameworks might be in need of a bit of fine-tuning. Right, so as okay. you might know, I wrote something uh, a couple of years back on um, sort of trying to urge my fellow my fellow scholars to uh, abandon the word sectarianism, and I wanted to underline how um, that, that word, the usage of that word, and that broad sort of multi-headed fluid, uh, um, nebulous nature of that word is actually doing more harm than good to our sure. understanding of sectarian dynamics. Because as a field, collectively, it's almost like we're talking past each other. And yeah. I think one of the main reasons that is, is that the terms of reference are so uh, And this would be sectarianism and its discontents in the Middle East Journal, Correct. I take it? Correct, yes. Yeah, and I think that's a that's an absolutely fantastic piece of work, and one of the one of the most important pieces of work on sectarianism in in recent years. I would say I'm certainly sympathetic to to the views that you've expressed just there, and also in the piece. So anyone who's not read it, I, I strongly urge you to if you haven't done already. But Fana, before we go into into this conceptual discussion of sectarianism, I wonder your PhD was on um, was on sectarian relations in Arab Iraq. Could you tell us a little bit about about where you where you got into that topic? What what compelled you to do to do a PhD in that? Uh, good question. Um, I mean, it was quite a re- reflection of its time, I suppose. Uh, sure. I started my PhD program at the University of Exeter in two thousand and six. Uh, so two thousand and six, as you know, is the height of uh, Sunni Shia violence in, in Iraq. Yes. At the time, in the summer of two thousand and six, uh, the death count reached over three thousand seven hundred per month in the summer of two thousand and six. So it was a really terrible time, uh, not just in terms of the quantity, uh, sheer scale of the bloodshed, but also in the nature, how sect coded it was. Uh, there was a, a particularly ugly side to it all. Anyway. Um, I started off doing my PhD on uh, state establishment and state formation, looking at the 1920s and sure. trying to compare it to uh, uh, the post-2003 era. And the more I looked at several sort of milestones in that in that sort of historic narrative, the more I thought there's 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 the story of Sunni-Shia relations that hasn't really been flushed out, hasn't been told yet. And at the time, the debates were raging about what was going on in Iraq. And it struck me 
that the conventional wisdom, particularly in Western sort of academic circles, was uh, disproportionately informed by the experience and perceptions of a very specific and rather uh, um, small socioeconomic bracket of a particular generation of Iraqis. Sure. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not dismissing the validity. I mean, my aim was never to dismiss the validity of their views or anyone else's. It's just to say that the picture is a lot broader than sort of your, uh, you know, 60-year-old, 70-year-old, uh, um, former communist uh, intellectual hmm. who up in a cosmopolitan Baghdad that barely cared about sectarian identity. That's sure, fine and well, but things change, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's an older history and there's more recent history that, that, that differs. Um, and one thing that I tried to do in the PhD, in the book, and in my subsequent work is to caution against um, anchoring our understanding of Sunni Shia dynamics in any single period, be it a benign period or, a, or, or, or one of inflammation. Um, so no use of pointing to 2006 and saying, God, look, uh, uh, sectarian relations are uh, so central to Iraqi politics and what have you, just as it's no use pointing to the, you know, I don't know, the 1950s and saying the opposite. Of course. Um, things change and we need to account for that fluidity. And so that's really why I, I, I embarked on this back in 06, 07. Um, <clears throat> and it was a reflection also uh, of my frustration with the uh, discussion and the debate surrounding Iraq at the time, and particularly surrounding uh, sectarian uh, uh, relations. Um, and since then, I'm sure, I hope you'll agree, the, the, the conversation has been moved by light years since um, yes. when you think back how simplistic things <laughs> yeah, were of course. back in 2006, 7, 8, even all the way up to more recent years, absolutely simplistic, stultifying, if I'm being honest. Uh, I think now the scholarship is a lot more impressive on, um, on the subject. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's, it's one of those examples where the field of Middle East studies has has learned a great deal from its its sister disciplines, if you will, in, in sociology, in, 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 in other forms of, of scholarship, where there's been a wonderful degree of, of, of intellectual, theoretical and conceptual development. And um, I'm thinking particularly of the work of someone like Margaret Archer, who's whose theory of, of um, social change and identity politics, the critical realism, allows you to do exactly what you've been talking about, not just mm -hmm. accepting a, a particular time and indeed space, I think we should add, and saying that is sectarian relations, but allows you to trace time and space and allow for evolution and change. And I think you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, the discipline has moved on. Mm -hmm. So... Just out of interest then, when you're talking about the discipline moving on, who would you say was, was responsible, other than yourself, of course, and I'm sure you wouldn't identify yourself as pushing the discipline on, but um, you're certainly responsible for it. But who else do you think is, is doing that? Who else is pushing the discipline in, in more nuanced and interesting ways? Uh, I mean, there's been a, a lot of excellent work in recent years, some of which uh, uh, has been featured in this podcast. Um, be it uh, Basel Sloch's work or the edited volumes that were published by um, or edited by uh, Fred Wery and the other one by uh, Nader Hashimi and, and uh, Daniel sure. Postel. I mean, collectively, these are excellent. Actually, and one of the earliest, I'd say, uh, earlier than those is the um, uh, volume edited by uh, Marashal and Zimni. Uh, right. It's called The Dynamics of Sunni Shia Relations. I thought that was very good. So collectively, you've got all these books that 
are, are really quite excellent. Then there are other newer studies. For example, there's an excellent study that came out this year by, um, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Stacey Strobel. Yes. Uh, and the really great thing about that book is that she's actually a criminologist. And she tries to examine the relations of power underpinning Sunni-Shia relations in Bahrain by examining the history of the judiciary and the judicial system and the criminal justice system in Bahrain. So it's a very innovative uh, uh, take on the, on the subject. And again, it reflects uh, uh, that sort of evolution of the field where this was unthinkable 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and people were far more interested in either denying the relative relevance of quote-unquote sectarianism or uh, uh, placing it front and center of everything. Um, sure. yeah. and other, other works, I mean, there are, there are quite a few. Uh, Justin Gengler, of course, has done excellent work on Bahrain. Of course. Uh, Harith Hassan, to bring it to my turf, uh, to Iraq. Uh, Harith Hassan, I think, has been absolutely excellent on this. Uh, there's, there's been quite a, quite a lot there. My apologies to the to uh, my colleagues and friends whose name escapes me now. I'm trying to think of my feet. Sorry, I've put you on the spot there, Fanar, and I do apologize, <laughs> and there are many, many scholars. I, I'm just curious to see who who are the more influential figures sort of shaping your views and your work, because obviously you're, you're pushing boundaries a great deal, and, and that, that piece in the Middle East Journal, I think, is absolutely central in, in trying to shape the debate, pushing it beyond the ancient hatreds, primordial, um, instrumentalist debate? No, absolutely. We really need to get beyond that. I mean, if for no other reason, because we all bloody agree. Exactly. Uh, there's very little I mean, actual debate. You'd be very, very hard-pressed to find a card-carrying primordialist or a card-carrying uh, an instrumentalist um, in, in, in this, uh, you know, working on sectarian identity or someone who actually pushes the ancient hatreds uh, line. Uh, sure. I should say the instrumentalists, no, you can find them, they're, they're a dime a dozen, and I might be sort of semi one of them, but uh, <laughs> the the old ancient hatreds thing, I mean, I, I really would struggle to think of a single scholarly work, uh, a recent one that would push this. I mean, maybe you can correct me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being naive here, but it just strikes me that something that we, uh, to the, uh, you know, as, to the extent possible in academia, there seems to be a consensus on it. And we do need to uh, move the debate forward yes. because we are so stuck in, 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 in uh, addressing what sectarianism is or isn't. And we're still so stuck in sort of uh, some conceptual questions that I think these are distracting from actually trying to understand sectarian dynamics uh, and what's going on now. Particularly now that it seems to be that the, we are beyond the eye of the, we're no longer in the eye of the storm, so to speak. There does seem the, the the issue of or rather shall we say sectarian entrenchment in the Middle East seems to be subsiding somewhat uh, compared to the heights of the Syrian civil war compared sure, to the heights yeah. of the Iraqi civil war. So the eye of the storm is kind of moving on. Well, I, I uh, certainly I hope you're right. It's a good time to, to sort of take take stock of of where we were uh, and also to see to learn lessons as to how things de-escalate, which is where projects like yours come in. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I, I wonder, before just moving on to, to the conceptual stuff that you're working on and hopefully a bit of desectarianization, if you will, I wonder if one of the reasons why, why the field is still almost stuck and stagnant in this ancient hatreds, instrumentalist, constructivist debate is because of the, the policy world, because of the, the traction that the ancient hatreds thesis finds amongst uh, amongst political elites. I mean, we heard um, 
I guess, a liberal president such as Barack Obama using the yes. ancient hatred thesis. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why, why we're still caught up in that. I think, I mean, yes, absolutely. It does have resonance in, in, in that. I mean, every time I write, I mean, I just finished something for the Century Foundation, which I, uh, I hope you read, and I hope you, you know, would be of value. It should be coming out not, not, not in the too distant future. And, and, you know, every time I write something of, relating to policy, there's always sort of the introductory uh, section that addresses this issue of, of you know, uh, ancient hatreds. Yes. Uh, even if not in those exact terms. So yes, I mean, there's there's certainly like that that policy dimension because uh, to paraphrase Daniel Neep, he, he was talking about artificial states. This is another one of what he would call uh, a zombie argument. No matter how many times academics kill it, it just come, comes right back up. Yes. Uh, so yeah, exactly. So I, I do see the, the the sort of the need for this to to go on. But two things: one, I think it's vastly exaggerated. In uh, academic discourse, sort of the uh, the resonance of these of these frames is not as universal as academics sometimes make it out in the snitty way when they're discussing policy circles. Mm. Uh, the other thing is, uh, fine. Why should this be such an issue in an academic gathering? I mean, if you're at an academic conference, the room full of academics, there's not a policy walk in, in, in miles. Why do <laughs> yes. we still have to debate this? Sure. Uh, so that's that's the other thing. That's what I had in mind, really, when I wrote that was sort of uh, the, you know, the internal debate, uh, why that continues to be mired in these frames. Uh, otherwise, yeah, there's something that needs to be told to the general public. There's something that needs to be told to policymakers, and it very much needs to offer a corrective against sort of the ancient hatred's line. But in academia, it's really just it's something we, we practically agree on. Sure. So know your audience. Speak to the right audience. Speak to the audience that you're in front of, I guess. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. So one of the interesting things that came up in conversation on the last episode with, with Fred was was his experience of talking to policymakers and how he was able to share his 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 work. I wonder if you've got any any reflective insights on on how you've tried to share your work with policymakers. Um, honestly, I've, I mean, I've have I found I think my my experiences uh, have been generally positive. I think that there is a, a ready I've sensed a readiness to sort of take on board the insights that we provide. Um, I think there's more of a problem with their stickiness. Do they stick? Do the insights stick? But otherwise, I've actually found that policymakers tend to be quite receptive sure. to the idea that there's more to this than, than ancient hatreds. Uh, but again, it's the zombie argument. It keeps coming up. And I think part of the reason of that is the, um, is the simplicity of, of the argument. Uh, it's so convenient for someone who wants to sort of just uh, uh, communicate to a public audience of course. To bring that up, uh, it's a very, it's it's a seductively easy way to think about the Middle East, and no matter how many times uh, uh, we we counsel against it, it does seem to come back up. Uh, and incidentally, this is this is not just an issue of Western policymakers. You you get a sort of echoes of it in the Middle East as well, uh, where particularly when we are in the eye of the storm, so to speak, uh, you do come across a very essentialized view of the sectarian other, you come across an essentialized view of sectarian relations um, and of the propensity, for, for example, a very common one is the uh, essentialized view of the propensity of Iraqis towards violence. 
Yes. And you, you, you get this almost perverse pride in, uh, in the old saying that uh, um, the, uh, from the, this is from the Umayyad days that uh, that they're prone to, to uh, disagreements. Indeed, uh, yeah. So you see this essentialization and dehistoricization um, in Middle Eastern discourse on the subject as well. Sure. And I'm, I'm just thinking on the zombie argument front, which I really like that. I've not heard that before, but I think it's, it's spot on. It's, it's the clash of civilizations all over again. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. Which is yeah, uh, a, a wonderfully it, frustrating it, 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 zombie. Least sort of, well, I mean, I'm not sure how, to what extent that remains the case, but certainly until recently, uh, yeah, the, you had sort of a miniature version of the clash of civilizations, but, you know, instead of Muslims and Christians, it was Shias and Sunnis. And yeah. again, it's sort of framed through a very histor- uh, selective reading of history that focuses on, you know, negative uh, uh, episodes. Uh, and yeah, which brings us back to the first, uh, to, to, to the beginning of our conversation and how we shouldn't anchor our understanding of these things in any uh, time period, be it a benign one or a nefarious one. Exactly, yes. And one of the things that I, I'm trying to do with, with the SEPAD project is, is say it's not just time, but it's space as well. It's, it's shaped, um, you, have, you have these, these instances of, of violence or political tension that are shaped by time, shaped across time, but also shaped by space. And, and I think that's absolutely key. And your work on Iraq is, is central in showing how this differs from from, say, events in Lebanon or Bahrain or, or, or Syria or, Le- or Yemen, for instance. So I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely key. Absolutely. And I think here, yeah, really, a major sort of uh, variable. Uh, I mean, take, take the countries you just listed and then compare them with Saudi Arabia. Of course. Uh, you look at uh, places like Lebanon, uh, Syria, Iraq, Bahrain as well, for that matter, um, and formally, at least, uh, officially, Religious orthodoxy is not sort of a criteria for criterion for uh, national inclusion. Yes, and so you see that the uh, sectarian competition is much more uh, concerned with issue with with with, uh, with temporal issues rather than religious ones in those countries. Whereas in Saudi Arabia, because of the emphasis on uh, uh, sort of religious credentials, so to speak, uh, sectarian dimension uh, sectarian dynamics have an inflated. Uh, religious dimension, where fiqhi issues come into it, where the fact of religious otherness comes into it. Yes. Whereas in, in the other countries, it's more about nation, national authenticity. It's about, uh, yeah, national authenticity, entitlement to the national pie. And the, the, the competition revolves much less about issues of religion than it does about issues of the, regarding uh, or relating to the nation state and access to the state. Uh, and I think that's something that where where your concept of space is really important. It really does differ quite quite drastically from one uh, uh, context to another. And this brings me to something I've been sort of working on uh, quite a bit now, and it's how we how how do we contextualize the role of religion in the sense of religious dogma and religious truths in the subject of sectarian relations? Because on the surface, what we're talking about are religious categories, right? But yes. there's so much more than that. They don't just play out in the realm of religious uh, philosophy or jurisprudence or things like that. Sure. And so I think a very common mistake that comes up, uh, that continues to come up, even in scholarly work as well, is to sort of, um, is to fail to calibrate, correctly calibrate the relevance of 
or to correctly gauge the relevance of uh, uh, religious issues in sectarian dynamics. Mm. I yeah. don't know if that's making sense to you. Again, I'm sort of yeah. wording this from my feet. Sure, no, um, it, it does. It's... You, do, you do see a sort of a report, you see writings where they emphasize the intractable nature of political conflict in places like Iraq or Syria with reference to the incompatibility of religious beliefs. And you think, well, you know, Syria is not, the war in Syria is not really about religious belief, is it? Uh, yeah. Nor is it about religious belief in, in Iraq either. Uh, it's much more about competing uh, uh, group entitlements and competing group access to the nation state and to political power and to representation as well. Yes, I would agree. And I think it's important to, to bring all of those things together, all those questions together. It sounds like something you've been, you've been giving a lot of thought to. Is this something that is, is going to feature in your new book? Yes, very much so. So the book I'm working on now, which I'm hoping uh, to sort of um, finish in the near future, I mean, I'm aiming very ambitiously, aiming for uh, a 2019 uh, publication. Wonderful. Uh, but we all know how those things are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, never on time. Um, but yeah, it's mainly uh, in, in the it's mainly a conceptual uh, uh, exploration of the subject. Uh, in fact, only a couple of chapters will be case study chapters. The rest will be more uh, aimed at addressing these conceptual issues. So, with the idea of religion, for example, that's going to come up um, quite a bit. It's going to feature quite a bit because we also need to guard against the other extreme whereby religion becomes a sort of false consciousness that we should disregard, you know, with the quote-unquote real driver being economics or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so you don't want to go in, the, in that other extreme. Um, and I think that it's crucial to sort of appreciate that sectarian identity operates uh, on several different levels. Uh, yes. With, and, and it's not that one is relevant and one isn't. That is dictated by context. Uh, they're not always about religion. They're not always not about religion. Uh, and I think there is a, a tendency in academia particularly to be dismissive uh, of religion as a driver and religious dogma and questions of religious truth as a driver of sectarian dynamics. But at certain times it is. For, for certain people, this actually is important enough. And we do need to be flexible, intellectually flexible enough to, uh, you know, incorporate that into our analysis. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely central. I think that's that's a really important contribution there. So you mentioned that there there are a couple of conceptual things that you're looking at, and that's that's clearly one of them. But could you mention a couple of others, just as as little teasers to whet our appetite for your work, Fanar? Yeah. Uh, well, um, I, I the other thing that I really thought needs a lot more attention, I think. And again, with the, with the years, with every passing year, we do get you know. We're getting better at this, I think, as a field. Uh, but I think there's a lot needs to be done, a lot more needs to be done on the intersection of sectarian identity and class. Yes. Uh, I think class is a central driver uh, of sectarian dynamics in places like Iraq and like in Lebanon. And there are a few good studies. And here I'm thinking of, of uh, the uh, scholar whose name I can never correctly pronounce. Uh, is it Sha'ari? Sha'ari? It's a double-barreled name. Uh, it's called Shiite Lebanon. Right. And her work on, on that really sort of brings out the centrality of class alongside, again, we shouldn't sort of be dismissive of other facets, alongside other facets of sectarian difference, uh, be it dogma or what have you, but class being a really central part of uh, how uh, sectarian relations are framed, 
how the question of national authenticity is formulated with regards to different sectarian uh, groups. And again, questions of inclusion and exclusion come into this. So I think that class is really important, uh, and I certainly want to uh, uh, bring that out in this forthcoming book. Uh, also, of course, the national frame, I think, is very important. It's featured a lot in my work. Mm. Uh, but I want to move beyond that uh, to bring in, as I said, the issue of uh, class and uh, local dynamics and also transnational dynamics as well. Okay, that sounds absolutely fascinating. What are the case studies you're looking at, just quickly? As I'm conscious, we're taking up a lot of your time now, Fana. So, um... no, it's, it's it's quite all right. It's quite all right. Um, the case studies, I mean, throughout the book, of course, even even if we're, when we're talking conceptually, you still need examples. So, of course, the, the book is sort of peppered with a lot of uh, examples from Syria, Iraq, uh, Bahrain, and Lebanon, and uh, Saudi Arabia as a counterexample. Okay. Uh, again, due to the different ways in which religion features in those places. Sure. Uh, in terms of historic case studies, I do. There is a small section uh, that goes into the Ottoman era. Okay. Um, and I think that that's a, a very important and an understudied. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of Ottomanist scholars who have looked at this, uh, and then there's us. And I don't think we we should be in better touch with our Ottomanist colleagues. Because there's a lot of good work on this, like by Stefan Winter, uh, by um, who else comes to mind? Stefan Grehan as well, I think is his name. Um, uh, Karen, something or another, who wrote uh, Imperial Citizen. There's quite a few of these Ottomans who have done really valuable work on this subject. Gokhan Setinsaya as well. Uh, and I think I, I want to draw on that to okay. explore the Ottoman legacy and how these issues played out prior to the nation-state. Because if we're talking about the centrality of nationalism and the nation-state in this, then we have no basis to formulate an opinion without knowing what came before or how it compares to what came before so we know what changed. Of course. Um, but the main, main case studies would be in the post-2003 era, as in sort of these take up two chapters. One looking at uh, uh, the impact of 2003 itself, which I think set a very poisonous stage upon which the Arab Spring unfolded. Yes, I would agree. Uh, and I often wonder, I often wonder to myself, and can never answer this question, uh, would the Syrian civil war have been as interna internationalized and as sectarianized, for want of a better word, mm. uh, as it was, were it not for the backdrop of 2003 and the preceding uh, eight years uh, and the developments uh, therein. Um, and then there will be a chapter on Iraq itself, I mean, just dedicated to Iraq. Okay. And those will be the, the practical case studies, but otherwise it's uh, largely conceptual. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm very much looking forward to, to reading it, and hopefully we can get you back on again to talk about it in more detail uh, when, it, when it's out. Do you have a title, and, and can you say who's publishing it? Uh, I think I can say it's publishing it. Uh, with any luck, uh, Hurst and Co are going to publish it, and uh, hopefully in, in uh, collaboration with Oxford University Press. Wonderful. Uh, and the book should be called Understanding Sectarianism, but sectarianism in quote marks for reasons that you know. Yes. Uh, Sunni Shia relations in the modern Arab world. Wonderful. It sounds absolutely fascinating, and... Um, Fingers crossed it's going to be out in 2019. Yeah, yeah. All yeah, being well. You know what well. they say, there's no better way to make the gods laugh than by announcing your plans. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, I have a, a similar aspiration, but I'm not going to announce them. 
smart man. Well, not this time anyway. Fanat, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. So um, I, I wish you all the best with, with all of the work and with finishing the book and everything. And I hope to speak to you again on the podcast sometime soon. Anytime. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. No problem. Thanks.